Good day and welcome to the Cincy Slangin' Bearcat Podcast. I'm Coomer, and I'm just doing a quick introduction this week for a conversation Hummer and I had with a personal acquaintance of mine. Yes, we're trying something a bit different this week. While it's a personal acquaintance, it's actually someone who was a team manager for the Cincinnati Bearcats basketball team from 2006 to 2011. That's right. Your favorite team manager, Corey Sims, joins the podcast today to tell some old stories, primarily from that 2009 Bearcats team. We start with the team that featured Lance Stevenson, Deontay Vaughn, Yancey Gates, and he goes in about the, the Maui Invitational, Yancey's coming out party, that frustrating Gonzaga game and the ending that you probably all remember. Um, I even tell a weird story about selling a PlayStation 3 to Chad Johnson. Anyway, give it a try. This whole episode is Corey's stories. Ideally, we convince Corey to keep coming back on the podcast, maybe not for conversations as long as the one we did today, but, you know, 15 minutes just for give us a, a story or two about managing Mick Cronin basketball teams, talking about the guys on the team at that time. Funny stories from the sideline. He tells a few today. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, we really appreciate Corey joining us on the podcast. Had a great time having this conversation with him. Anyway, without further ado, let's get into it. Corey's stories. Corey Sims. We are now joined by Story Corey himself, Corey Sims, the former, one of the former equipment managers for the Cincinnati Bearcats, specifically under Mick Cronin, his first five years as the Cincinnati Bearcat coach. Corey, thanks for joining the podcast, buddy. Hey, guys. It's great to see you. Great to be with you. We're glad to have you on. We've been uh, circling each other here for quite a few months. Uh, for those for those listening, Corey and I do go back. We were friends in college, had many a drink together, many a conversation about the Cincinnati Bearcats during some of the darkest days of being a Cincinnati Bearcat basketball fan. And oh, yeah. Corey, I thought it would be awesome to have you on because A, you're a great storyteller, but B, you've got a lot of great stories to tell from your time managing the, the Cincinnati Bearcats edition 2006 to 2011. Yeah, happy to. Um, excited to share some some past uh, stories that hopefully will either be insightful or funny or, uh, um, you know, one. What's funny is I was thinking about this, and you're talking about sharing some drinks. Like one of my uh, fondest memories of hanging out with you is us just lamenting watching the uh, the Memphis game. I don't know if you remember this. We were we were watching it in your your uh, apartment and. Uh, I think it was our, I think it was Mick's second year in Memphis. I think Memphis was number one in the country. And we went down there and we were losing by like 40. We were losing so bad that uh, ESPN cut away from the game and went to another game. And it was, again, it goes to show you how far we fell and then how far we've, we've climbed back in the past, you know, 15 plus years. He definitely pulled us back out of the depths of, of college basketball hell. Those first couple of years were, were something else. And and I think it's it's going to be funny hearing you tell it from your perspective, being so close to the team at that time. I actually think back on those first couple of years of Mick extremely fondly now. Once you're away from it, once you've gotten out of those, those dog days, you remember these guys in a positive light because of the fact that it was kind of this haphazardly put together team. 
just a lot of personalities, not necessarily the most talent, certainly not the most talent, uh, but just a group that's, that's fun to look back on and talk about in hindsight. I mean, this is a team that had the legendary Adam H. It was the that's team right. that, that started Deontay Vaughn's prestigious career with the Bearcats. Barwin played, played a year or two with the Bearcats. Ronald Allen, who we've had on the podcast. Uh, just, just a great, great, funny group of guys. Absolutely, man. And I'm, I'm hoping uh, if you guys bring me back after today, we'll get into some of those early years. Uh, this year or this week, I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit because, you know, like I said, I'm wearing my Maui Invitational shirt from 2009. Um, <clears throat> this would have been the Maui Invitational week. So I just wanted to talk through that a little bit. Um, I remember going to the Maui uh, Invitational and you know, at that time being in the big East and then being able to go to this. And I just remember thinking like, if I can do this later in life, if I have two weeks of vacation, I'm going to spend them every year going to the Maui Invitational, no matter who's playing and then going to the big East tournament, Madison square garden, no matter who's playing. Um, but you know, uh, now we're stuck in kind of this conference purgatory and, and not in that big East and how great that conference was. So um, but Maui Invitational, I hope the Bearcats get back there in the next couple of years. There's rumors that that's going to happen. And so, um, you know, looking back in that 2009-2010 team, you know, that was that was Stevenson. That was Lance's year. All right. So um, we're sitting there and we're, we're practicing. We, we had a couple games before we went over there. Uh, for those of you guys that don't know, the Invitational is always – you know, the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday prior to Thanksgiving. Um, and that time of the year, it's a five-hour time difference uh, in Maui. And so I remember getting there and, like, we got there late Friday night. And um, it was so dark there that you, um, like, you couldn't see absolutely anything. So I remember getting to the hotel the next morning, you wake up, and you're like, holy shit, there's the beach and, you know, across from a volcano in this golf course. It was just unbelievable to, to be in Maui, right? So we get there late and we wake up that Saturday morning. It's about seven o'clock. We wake up, we turn on the TV and like Ohio State and Michigan are already kicking off for football. Um, so it's just, uh, it's a completely different lifestyle there being five hours um, time difference. And so we had... Uh, we had a couple of days of practice to like get acclimated to the time difference, you know, a couple of cool activities. I think ironically, you know, that year. So, so as you see, um, and then Arizona was there that year. And that was right when Sean Miller had gone to Arizona. Um, so I think that, that first uh, Saturday morning, they had like a, a coach's free throw contest. And I think the finals ended up being Mick for Sean Miller. Oh. And, <laughs> and, and what's funny is it was like, it was for charity, right? Like whatever coach won, like they got to pick the, the charity that the money went to on the Island. And I'm pretty confident Mick sank the shot and beat Sean Miller in the, in the uh, free throw challenge. So, oh, Mick you know, we felt, Mick oh yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, he did. So that was huge. Um, really good teams that year. So they had Arizona, they had uh, Wisconsin, Maryland, um, Chaminade, of course, Gonzaga, UC, and I think Colorado rounded it out. So, and, and uh, Vanderbilt. 
And so uh, even flying over there was a cool experience because, you know, you're, you're flying commercial because uh, it's an invitational, right? They, they basically tell you, hey, here's your tickets. Here's how many guys get to come. I think they paid for 25 people to, to come over and you see being on the tight budget that it, it, it is. Uh, there was only one manager that went. So I was, I was the lucky guy there that got to go. So how do you get chosen uh, as the guy to uh, to go as the straws? Is it a free throw shooting contest? <laughs> is it seniority? <laughs> is it a power play by you at this point? You know, I think I lucked out a little bit because I was a fourth year at that point. I was moving up to uh, a co-head manager role. The other uh, head managers with me were were a year younger, so I think it was just a little uh, luck of putting in my four years time and. Um, and, and some of those younger guys too, just uh, seeing what I had gone through the first couple of years and, and letting me be rewarded with this trip. So, uh, but it was hysterical, right? You're, you're flying this commercial flight over there and all of a sudden you've got these seven foot basketball players, you know, Ibrahima Thomas with his legs stretched out uh, across the aisle as people are trying to climb over him to get back to the bathrooms. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's a long fight, right, man, four, four or five hours just from L.A. to get to Maui and, and these basketball players being cooped up. But the cool part was we're sitting in, in LAX waiting for this layover, and all of a sudden Scott Van Pelt just starts walking down. Um, and I'm like, Scott, what's up? You know, I, I didn't have anything to lose. I went up to him. He started talking to us, sharing some awesome stories. He was going to the Maui Invitational. Um, because Maryland was playing in it and uh, he was going with Andy North, his buddy that, you know, the, the golfer that yeah. and Andy North went to Wisconsin. So Maryland and Wisconsin were both in it that year. And um, so they were going out together and, and Scott was awesome, man. He was just like a, a easygoing dude. And he had always kind of shown you see some love on his shows right in the past. Um, so we started talking some basketball stories and then the, and the, the way the bracket was set up was if we beat Vanderbilt in the first round, we would then more than likely play Maryland in the second round. And, uh, cause I think, let's see, I had this pulled up just to, you had that right. Cause we did, we did play Vanderbilt and we ended up playing Maryland. Yeah, Maryland was playing Chaminade in the first round. Okay. So we we pretty much knew, right? And and the interesting part about the the Maui Invitational, right? It's like you only have one day to prepare. So you gotta you gotta have film and a scouting report prepared for both potential teams that you might be playing the next day because as soon as you got back to the hotel, you were already prepping for the next day. Um, and having a walk through that night and, and we had to have film cut up, ready to go to break down. I mean, do but, you really uh, break down Chaminade or do you just say, Hey guys, <laughs> you can come in two hours later tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, to be honest, that was part of the motivation for the Vanderbilt game, uh, was <laughs> I think so with a five hour time difference, I really can't remember if, if we were starting to play at, at noon Eastern. But I think then it was, I think it was like a 12 and two game Eastern standard time. And Mick was just like, I'm going to lay it online to you guys. Do you want to freaking get up and play at seven o'clock in the morning tomorrow? Or do you want to beat Vanderbilt and our opponents, Maryland, and we get to play in the afternoon? 
And, uh, you know, we could have been playing the number one team in the country. I think they would have won that game because they just did not want to have to get up and play a basketball game at seven o'clock in the morning. Um, that would be brutal. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, so we're, we're flying over there and we're talking to Scott. Scott's like, I think if we play you guys, man, you got, you guys will take us in the second round. And I was like, well, we'll, we'll see. Um, we fly over there. We talked to him a little bit afterwards while we're waiting on our bags to come in. And we're like, you know, Scott, like you got a, you got a really good basketball background. You know, did you play? What, you know, did you, did you think about playing in college? What that looked like? And he said, well, you know, I went to Maryland and I actually tried to walk onto the team. And, uh, he said, you know, lefty Drysdale was the coach then. And I won't do the impersonation justice, but he said Lefty had this like real Southern draw to him. He said uh, like an hour into the walk-on tryouts, he comes up to Scott and goes, Scott Van Pelt, ain't no D in your name, ain't no D in your game. He's like, you're, you're out of here. Get out of my gym. Uh, oh, man. <laughs> no. So that was it was just like cool to sit there and shoot the shit with Scott Van Pelt, right? Definitely. Yeah. And I, Scott SVP taking an L before he's SVP. I mean, that's a, that's a hell of a, yeah. uh, an accomplishment there for, uh, for lefty to have that, that in his, uh, you know, that's one of the <coughs> things he can like tell his grandkids. I cut SVP, man. That's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> so we sit there and, uh, you know, we, we pull out a, a good one versus Vanderbilt. Um, we've got, Maryland the next day and, and Yancey so Yancey was a sophomore you know he he played like a man possessed those first two games he cleaned up the boards um it was like finally kind of one of these like all right is Yancey gonna like come into his own it's just kind of his coming out party you know what I mean is he gonna start owning the game because he had that potential to just take a game over because of his size and his athleticism let me insert the narrator it was not <laughs> um and and you had lance right like lance came in a little little bit late in the offseason and um you know lance was still learning the offense and and lance had a big habit of he'd catch the ball and every time he would catch the ball in the offense he would take two dribbles and then he would pass it again and it would it would throw everything off in the offense because you know, offense is, is basically all about timing, right? And getting to a spot faster or quicker than what the, the defense um, is going to be able to jump to. And and God dang, would make it so pissed. Um, every time he'd catch that ball and take two dribbles, it was just a bad habit to, that we had to break, break Lance on. Um, that, so so it, let me ask you about that. Like the bad habits Lance comes in with, given that he is, you know, he's got this reputation before he even comes to UC. He's born ready, New York City right. high school legend. Um, I mean, there was always rumors and kind of the vibe was that this guy wasn't meshing well with the team and particularly De- Deontay Vaughn. Was there more to that or was it really just like the fact that how he played basketball was just always a little bit of a bad fit for the team? Um. You know, I think he got along like pretty well with with the teammates um, in general. Um, I don't specifically remember him and Deontay not necessarily getting along. I do think anytime you've got quote unquote a McDonald's All American coming in, um, 
and and Lance, you know, Lance is Lance, right? Lance I is mean, Lance, man. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the guy who blew sweet nothings into LeBron's ear in the playoffs years later. You know, right? Legend. Right, that's right. So um, there's going to be some some meshing obstacles there, if you will. Um, there are a couple good stories again. See, I got to throw these teasers out here so you guys invite <laughs> me back. Um, that we'll talk about Lance and some, some away trips and some good stories with him too. But, you know, Lance, um, I, I don't specifically remember him having a very good Maui Invitational. Um, I'd have to pull up his stat line, but I, I don't remember him being, you know, a really a big focal point, if you will. It was more yeah, about like in Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt, he, he had eight points, five boards. I don't think he shot particularly well. Uh, in the Maryland game, I don't think it was much better. Let's see. I've got it pulled up here. Uh, Lance finished with 11 and eight rebounds. All right. You know, solid, but not like blowing it out of the water as a McDonald's All-American. Probably below yeah. expectations given his status again. Absolutely. Um, and so we we play in this Maryland game. And, and the crazy part about that Civic Center is it's so small. And, and then the, the other crazy part is like, you know, where you see, right, we took one manager. So I was taking care of laundry. We were uh, we were dealing with film breakdown. So in the middle of the at halftime, have to run down, stop the computer, stop the DVD recorder, um, run up. The, the locker rooms was it's just basically one open room with a curtain in the middle of it that that the two teams are getting dressed in. So you would kind of take turns where like one team would go up for three or four minutes and have their little huddle while the other team kind of stayed down on the court and then they, they'd switch vice versa. Um, and so there, there's just a lot of moving parts. So I go over to stop our, our laptop and the DVD player in the middle of that Maryland game. And, and Scott's walking right there again. And he's like, see, I told you, he's like, I was worried about you guys. And he, he talked about Yancey. He's like, I was worried about Yancey. Um, and so we go on, we beat Maryland and, uh, you know, really good win. Yancey has another good game. And I, I'm leaving the arena um, to go out to the film truck where ESPN has things set up. Because what we do is we would try and record the game on our laptop and then get a DVD copy. But then you would always take – like a little bit of gear and maybe a couple of DVDs out to the TV truck to see if they would burn some copies for you as well, just in case something goes wrong with the technology while you're trying to record as well. Um, because God knows I didn't want to be on the receiving end of going up to Mick and telling him, Hey, by the way, we don't have any film from the game because you know <laughs> the DVD didn't burn. Right. I'm sure. He'd handle it and, well. Oh, absolutely. Calm. Um, Collected. Collected. <laughs> Inspirational. <laughs> so I'm, I go out to the TV truck and Gary Williams is like sitting in the loading dock area, like by himself. And he, he just, you know, looks like he's sweating like a horn church, right? Just the way he would always look on the sidelines, just like he had just wrestled a bear. Right. And, uh, you know, I was just like, Hey, you know, good game coach. And, and he looks up to me like dazed and confused. And he's like, man, tell me a little bit about this Yancey Gates. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, well, coach, you know, he was like a, you know, four-star recruit out of Cincinnati and, 
And, uh, and he's like, did he have a lot of offers? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, coach, you know, I think WVU recruited him hard and, you know, a couple other like major programs, uh, were, were coming after him, but he wanted local kid wanted to stay home. And he's like, God, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to get on my staff. I've never even heard of the kid. We didn't even know, like hadn't even been recruiting him. And, uh, he just kind of gave him another compliment, but it was like, they just didn't even know what to expect because again, Nancy just played so well. Um, so we're all hyped up, man. We're, we're going in all of a sudden we're going to have to play Gonzaga the next night. Right. And, and Gonzaga had been in the Maui Invitational before, and I think they had won it. And, you know, the cool thing about it too was they had the banners hanging in, in the civic center where it showed all the past winners. And then, um, they had another banner that talked about like the MVP of the tournament. And I mean, it was very evident that if Yancey had another above average game, he would be the MVP of the tournament, um, which as a sophomore, you know, that could have honestly taken his college career to another level. Right. Because now all of a sudden um, what type of confidence and national recognition does that give him and start motivating him and, um so we're sitting there we, we got Gonzaga that Wednesday night I remember being so hyped because um you know at that point it's the Wednesday before Thanksgiving you know biggest bar night of the year we just kept talking about I think the game was at six o'clock Maui time so it was like 11 o'clock I'm like god thinking about all my buddies Coomer you were probably at Uncle Woody's two pitchers deep you know <laughs> Um, what's funny is at the time I was in Japan, I'm looking at, this, oh, really? this, this is like a, uh, it's not a black hole for me in terms of remembering all this stuff, but I couldn't get all the games. So I was doing some box score watching during this time, time in my life. Now it doesn't mean I wasn't two pitchers deep, but it was probably, you know, a few, uh, a few Keatings, you know, something, something a little different out there. A few, uh, a few whiskeys. Sure. And sure. Well, I was watching it probably at Coomer's apartment on his TV that had been freshly broken the minute that he left for Japan. <laughs> I feel like that story needs elaborated on. Uh, it's, it's as simple as you can get where, you know, we remote alcohol. No, it's, even, it's even, it's even better than that. Cause where it all started, it started with like, I think a PS three selling it to Chad Johnson using the pro proceeds to buy oh, yeah. a ridiculously expensive at the time, you know, like, you know, top of the line, $2,000 TV friends convincing Coomer to leave it in the apartment when he goes to Vegas or goes out to Japan. Coomer's like, oh, I don't know if I should do this. He does it within a week. I think it was a week later after Coomer, Coomer left a Wii remote straight to the middle of it. <laughs> oh man. I forgot about this Chad Johnson PS3 shakedown. <laughs> the shakedown that's a story right if we're talking about leaving people hanging i'll promise to tell that story another time you know what let's do it let's just let's just tell you got story. some time I've never, I've never told this story um that is a situation where i had some buddies who were big time avid gamers they saw an opportunity to make a quick buck by camping out and selling these playstation 3s on the secondary market i guess all the buzz was there's just I don't know. It was, they're hard to get. We're going to put them on eBay, make a few hundred bucks and be done with it. So I joined last minute. I don't game at all. I figured, all right, I'll try and buy one and sell one too. It sounds easy. Um, 
we get we camp out a few nights in a tent in front of Best Buy. I think it was the Tri County Best Buy. I could be wrong on that, uh, but we're we're in tents. The Everclear is flowing. Uh, memorable nights abroad, or I guess Everclear. They weren't memorable <laughs> nights, but they were they were nights. Um, and then the morning we were going to walk in the store and buy these PlayStation threes. Uh, I guess some sort of installation geek squad equivalent guy who works at Best Buy walks in and says. I was just at Chad Johnson's house. He wants to buy a PlayStation 3. Uh, he's willing to obviously pay a little bit more for it, but he's looking for, for someone to sell it to him. And I'm just like, well, here, take my name and number. If this is bullshit, who cares? I'm going to, I can, it, I'm not going to lose anything for it. Uh, take my name and number, have him call me, and we can work out a deal. So I, I buy the PlayStation 3. Obviously, I'm exhausted. I go back to, I think I was living at University Park Apartments at the time crash i'm sleeping just through class nothing's nothing's uh i'm not being responsible at all and all of a sudden my phone rings and i get a call from a number i don't recognize and i and chad answers i answer the phone hello groggy chad and a guy a voice comes on the phone and says uh hey is this zach yeah yeah this is zach hey this is chad johnson and uh i heard you have a playstation 3 you want to sell uh yeah i do uh Chad Johnson. I, I definitely do. He's like, well, obviously, uh, you know, what, what are you looking for? How much you want to, how much you going to, you selling it for? And I said, well, you know, obviously I just jumped into it and said, Chad, my goal with this is to make some money, make some, you know, a profit on this thing. So, uh, <laughs> I looking back on it now, it's so ridiculous. I threw out a number. <laughs> he said, well, give me a number. I said, okay, well, $10,000. <laughs> I said with a straight face, I said, $10,000. <laughs> And he just kind of laughs me off and says, you got to be kidding me. Like, I'm not paying you $10,000 for a PlayStation 3. And he, but he goes on and says, he actually, he doesn't hang up on me. And he says, I have other things I can offer, you know, be it tickets, jerseys, bobbleheads, whatever. And I said, yeah, those things are all great. Absolutely. I'm interested in those things. But uh, the most important thing for me is to, is to make some money on this transaction. And so we ended up agreeing on a deal where I sold him a PlayStation 3 for, three thousand dollars Jesus, and uh <laughs> two tickets to the bengal steelers game that year as well as a signed jersey um the jersey i actually never got i'm not too bitter though because i got everything else um i ended up meeting him i mean the, the story gets weird after that where i meet him at jay alexander i'm picked up by my buddy andy who we are we are going to work together at bigs in Mason as deli as delicatessens uh, we are on our way to slice meat for people at Biggs and Mason. And uh, we, I said, we got to stop at Jay Alexander on the way. I'm going to sell this PlayStation three to Chad Johnson. I we pull up to, to Jay Alexander. Obviously I still don't even know if this is legitimate. Like I could be, yeah. it's a scheme. It could be it's a scheme FBI to just thing. rob me of my PlayStation three, but it's at Jay Alexander. So I'm hopeful. Uh, that's a, a, more of an upscale restaurant that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but we we get there. I walk in, and across the room, I can see Chad Johnson talking to a, a person I did not recognize at the time. It came. I came to find out it was Hugh Hugh Jackson, uh, the former <laughs> former Browns great in terms of head coaching, just a true legend of the game. Uh, but he, they're out there. He was the wide receivers coach of the Bengals at the time. And he says, uh, you know, he greets me, super, super nice guy, unbelievably nice. 
we go out to his truck. He hands me a bobblehead, just kind of chucks it to me and says, here, you can have this as well. I'll get you the Jersey another time. Um, and then to pay me, he asked me if I could take a check. I would prefer, I told him I preferred cash and he kind of like rolled his eyes at me and said, you're going to take a check. <laughs> a, a gentleman wearing scrubs walked in and handed Chad the check. He signed it, handed it to me and we went on our way. I went out to Biggs uh, to slice some more meat and, uh, and that was it. I made an incredible <laughs> deal, huge moment in my life, probably the best business deal, most savvy business deal I've ever made. And uh, it'll never happen again. I peaked. <laughs> Did you, I mean, did you, you, did you take a picture of the check for, you know, just hanging on your wall? I didn't. It's an embarrassment in terms of how I, how I did not capture and, and memorialize this moment. I have a photo of a photo I took on my flip phone at the time, which maybe I'll post online if I can find it on my phone. But You know, what's even more amazing about that too, right? Is like you could have parlayed that into like being Chad Johnson's best friend, right? I like, know. Hey, hey, man, I don't want anything from you. Like, I'll sell it at, at retail. Like, you know, just like getting some goodwill. Because if you think think about, and, and I did this too, right? Like, my, my flat screen still in our living room is the, the one I bought in college for, what, $1,200? You know, it's like that $2,000 TV is probably would cost you 500 bucks now. Right. Right. <laughs> Hummer, Hummer so, has one thing wrong. I actually used that money to, and I bought a used car with that money. So it, did, it okay. did go to a good use, but you're right, Corey. It was completely short-sighted to say, let me go ahead and make what, what to me at the time was a lot of money, right? Ooh, it made a few thousand bucks. Like, let me go spend this at Woody's. You know, it doesn't make any sense. It's, or, you know, maybe a lot of it went I think to it a makes car. hundred. I think it makes sense. I, I personally yeah. am on Corey's board, right. You could just be the guy who's like, I'm, I'm going to give you the hookup here. Just- at cost, let's go play. Let's go play some Madden. Let's go but have then a good the, time. The other, the other side of the story is for Chad. Then it's like, yeah, and this idiot, this moron, sold me his yeah. PlayStation at cost, and I didn't even get. I didn't even bring him the signed jersey. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> anyway, look, it's it was, not story. It, it's it not. Been, it's not story time with Zach. I want to hear more Mick Cronin talk, but that is just a little funny uh, run in I had at one point in my life. Oh, it's. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it would have been high risk, high reward, right? You know, right. you you were rolling the dice. And, and you took the sure thing, which at, at that age, I would have done the same. This is 30-year-olds talking about how we would have played it differently. He so, took a but, check. He wrote you a check. <laughs> took the check, baby. <laughs> That's incredible. You should have used the Randy Moss, man. Straight cash, homie. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. I need cash. Come on, Chad. I need cash. Nah, I'm writing you a check um, from a guy in scrubs. I, I, I never had that explained to me. I don't know why a hap a, a a kind of a belligerent looking man who's probably like five foot six walked in in scrubs and handed chad the check to sign it was odd and where did this man come from he i don't just... know i know nothing about him except that he was the carrier of chad johnson's checkbook maybe he's maybe that's the person overseeing his finances making sure he's not going too crazy they know the value of these things online this was the surest way for him to get one that day. So he has his business manager come up for some reason wearing scrubs and just says, here's your approved check. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. All right. So tell oh. me about where, where we, where I interrupted you was yeah. Gonzaga. Oh, Yancey Gonzaga. Gates is basically <clears throat> climaxing in terms of his Bearcat career right now. He's had two <laughs> amazing games at the Maui. <laughs> 
He's had two amazing games at the Maui Invitational. Gary Williams, his mind is blown. He's he sees him as the next transcendent stretch four at the NBA level. Now he plays Gonzaga. Take it from there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what's crazy about the Zags, right, is like they squeaked by Colorado in the first round. Um, I had to look this back up, but I remember watching it. Um, we were sitting there watching the game, and like it was coming down to the final, you know, last minute, and they won by four. Say, so and Colorado was was terrible that year, right? Um, and then I forgot that Wisconsin beat Arizona in the first round. So poor Sean Miller, man, is. His uh, beginning days at, at Arizona didn't start off too hot. Still has uh, a job. Still, yeah. still, still. Can, oh still man, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. You I'd, have any stories about Sean Hummer and bag dropping? <laughs> <laughs> Not Sean Hummer. <laughs> Sean Miller. <laughs> My brother made it onto the podcast. Congratulations, Sean. Congratulations, Sean. <laughs> Uh, so the Zags beat Wisconsin and, and we're playing them and, and right. This is like one of these that I still, uh, wake up with like cold sweats remembering this game. Um, I try to follow the, you know, the rule, John Wooden, you don't, don't get too high after a win. Don't get too low after a loss, but this is one that stings. Right. So I think we were up by like, we were up by like seven or eight with six, seven minutes ago versus Gonzaga. Um, and just went into one of those spells where we couldn't couldn't score, right? We we know them all too often as Bearcat fans. Um, <laughs> and Gonzaga the chips, last thirteen years. Yeah, <laughs> Gonzaga chips away, ties the game, um, and so it was Deontay's senior year, right? And so all of a sudden, we have the ball. We have a we have a sidelines out of bounds play, um, and Deontay's taking the ball out half court and it was right in front of the uh uh, jay billis was there doing the game bill rafferty and sean mcdonough i mean they had the a-team man right like all those guys came to one of our practices and got got to chat it up with them a little bit too it was such a cool experience um so he's taking the ball out of there and i remember the timeout right so like we have lance stevenson and um I'm hoping my memory is serving me correctly. I remember Mick drawing this play up because he felt that if Lance got the ball, they were going to double team Lance, which makes perfect sense. Right. So Deontay's going to take the ball out and, uh, and, and get it to Lance. But then the play was then if they're double teaming Lance, if Lance gets the ball back to Deontay and then Deontay being a strong three point shooter, right? Like they would then expect Deontay to, to try and get an open look and shoot the three. And so Mick actually drew it up to be an alley-oop pass to Yancey. Um, so kind of a shell game on, on two parts. So for everybody that used to kind of shit on Mick and his in-game coaching or, or some of his uh, um, late-game play calling, I can assure you that there were many times where he drew up very good plays um, they just weren't necessarily executed correctly. Uh, <laughs> again, um, for another podcast. Uh, no comment. Yeah. So this one actually was executed beautifully. And so I don't know. Do you guys remember this at all? I mean, I, I, were, definitely, I definitely Japan don't. I'm, I'm just watching, I'm watching Gamecast updates on ESPN. <laughs> yeah. Hummer, how about you? Do you remember this? We were very drunk by this point. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
So I would love, I even tried like for a couple minutes here to see if I could find any of the footage from this and I'd have to look and see if I have like a DVD of it. But so Deontay throws this oop pass to Yancey and at that point it was kind of a scramble drill for Gonzaga, right? Like, oh shit, you know, we, we tried to trap and double team Lance. That didn't work. We went back to Deontay. Looks like he's going to have an open three. He throws his alley-oop pass to Yancey. Yancey catches it. But he, he had to come down with it. He couldn't catch it and put it in like right away. Um, and he just gets mauled, absolutely mauled. Two defenders just wipe him out. And uh, they don't blow a whistle. They, they don't call a foul. And to the point that, again, if I, if I could find this footage, like I distinctively remember Jay, hearing Jay Billis like, oh, my God, you know, can't believe it. They don't call a foul. And time expired. So – Tied ball game, and this is where I only saw this a couple of times. But um, you know, the ref comes up to Mick, and Mick is irate, um, and he's sitting there, and and the ref just strategically turns his back to the cameras, right? And he's he's talking talking slow and, and low to Mick, and and he calms Mick down, and he's like, "I choked." He's like, "I choked on my whistle," and. Uh, he acknowledged he he botched the call, right? And so from here, was it Teddy? Um, <laughs> Teddy? Yeah, no. <laughs> no, Teddy would never. Teddy would never have the audacity to admit he was wrong. Man, he's he's never made a wrong call in the history okay. of his career. My bad. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, so I don't remember who who the ref was, but so, um, and this is up to loose interpretation here. But I will say that. In overtime, uh, they called four what I would consider ticky-tack calls, fouls on Gonzaga. And we had a chance, man. We shot eight free throws in overtime. And I, I think we went three of – maybe two of eight or three of eight in overtime, right? And it only scored four points in overtime. Gonzaga scored six, and they won the game. So you're so, saying that, like, they gave us every chance in the world to kind of correct the wrong and – from a from my perspective, I think they did. Now again, loose interpretation. I'm I'm not gonna say that that was promised um, or discussed that I saw that, but from someone sitting there seeing the play, seeing Yancey get absolutely mauled, and then the fact that we got eight shots at the line in OT, we had the chance to win that game um, and and just did it. So. Uh, man, it still haunts me. Uh, we, we packed our bags. We, we went back to the hotel uh, at that point, you know, I don't know, it was nine o'clock, nine 30 and, and found a local watering hole and drowned our sorrows. <laughs> it's funny. Cause now that you mention it, it's like, it's starting to come back, like watching that game. And you say, it, I feel like that's happened so many times over the last 13 years though, where like that particular story and that's the way the game ended too is where we had the chances at late in the late in the game that we just weren't hitting the free throws either super frustrating yeah it does and i mean shit we were already counting our chickens right they were already getting ready to order the banner you know to be able to hang in fifth third valley invitational champions and um and the hard part too for that one right is like you can argue if we were snobbed that year um robbed by getting in into the NC2As. I 
again, another uh, great kind of stories about the Big East tournament that year. But if you win that, right, that that game, like like we're back in the tournament, you know, instead we had to wait one more year, next fifth year to finally get back into the dance. So, but it was, it was an awesome experience. I mean, the next day, even though we we're all licking our wounds a little bit, um, I mean, it was cool. It was Thanksgiving day, got to have dinner on the beach in Maui with the team having Thanksgiving dinner. Um, and then we, we flew home, flew home on a red eye that night. Um, so didn't come home with the hardware, but definitely a lot of cool memories, great experiences. Um, and you know, one that I wish would have went the other way, but it's what it is, man. Life of a Bearcat fan. Very true. The good news <laughs> is the clip is on YouTube. So I did just quickly pull it up. I am going to take, I'll, I will post it online so people have it for reference. The only thing that appears different from what you said in your story is that instead of Deontay throwing the oop, it was Lance Stevenson himself throwing the oop. And okay. Yancey, right. Yancey attempts to finish it on yeah with, not, without coming down does clearly appear to get hacked as well so yeah. all of that adds up like the the anger from mick yancey getting hacked all of that seems to add up it's just it's just minor details which yeah you know this is memory memory is a is a hell of a thing you know this these are the things that change over time hey man i remember being a two-man game with deontay and lance um and and uh you know hey from 11 years ago and, and a lot of suds in between now and then I'd say I'm thankful for being able to remember this much. I should have written this down a long time ago. Well, it would be fun to keep notes on it in hindsight. So let me, you know, that that's a fantastic just kind of uh, story about Maui, about the experience overall. I mean, you, you ran into Scott Van Pelt, you learn about his, his heyday at, as a walk-on or a, an attempted walk-on at Maryland. You should have asked him if you ever considered being a manager, you know, it's coming yeah. from your, from, from your role, you know, well, you could have, you could have been a manager, Scott, if you really cared about the program. Um, I want to ask you more. I want to poke a little bit around the Lance Stevenson experience, the Yancey Gates experience, um, yeah. because you perfectly captured the essence of Yancey Gates in this story. Like in talking about, three games in Maui, Vanderbilt, Maryland, and Gonzaga. It's this idea of, holy, you know, it's unbelievable how good this guy can be. He can just dominate the boards. He has a feathery touch. He can score at will seemingly. But there's also just kind of this inconsistency element to him that he never quite got figured out. Your perspective, being behind the scenes, you know, what's just, what's the deal with that? Is that something that, you know, frustrated Mick? Was it, I, cause it frustrated fans, right? He, he was sure. an extremely productive player <clears throat> at UC. I don't want to be too harsh on Yancey Gates. I, I, I cracked a couple jokes at his expense, but in reality, really good four-year player at UC. I think the disappointment comes from the idea that he just never maximized the full range of his capabilities. You know, with, with Lance and Yancey, right? Like, I think the frustration for all of us, right, is like, you know, we want to sit here and pretend like if we had Yancey's talent and his athleticism and his size that we would have performed differently, right? We would have taken advantage of it and it, it may be a, a different way. Um, I think what's hard, and, and I remember hearing Coach Cronin say this, was 
I think after him seeing the way that Yancey playing at home, um, where he constantly had to perform in front of, you know, numerous friends or family members that he grew up with, um, the stress and the toll that that put on him. You know, I, I remember coach saying like, he didn't know that he'd ever recruit another local Cincinnati guy because he saw the added pressure that that then put on him to perform, um, which I think is an, an interesting dynamic, right? We always typically think like, Hey, let's get the local kid. Let's keep him here. You know, what a win for the program or, you know, give people a vested interest, but there's added pressure to that too, versus, you know, the California kid or the Florida kid that, you know, yeah, maybe they've got their mom and dad in town for a game or an aunt and uncle, right? But they're not playing in front of, you know, hundreds of people that they've grown up playing in front of before. That's super interesting. I mean, that's that that's something real because honestly, Mick was notorious after this for not recruiting local talent. And what you may have done was really just informed or provided a specific example as to why that was the case. I would say it might be a bit of a mistake to take the one experience and one career of Yancey Gates and, and to extrapolate that across how every local local athlete will react and play in front of their hometown. But it's an, I mean, it's his experience and watching it firsthand. He's probably saying like, this is not the healthy way to, to begin your, your high level basketball career to be, have this much pressure on you in your hometown. Yeah. And, and I will say, you know, I, I don't think that um, one experience makes a trend, right. You know, and I think coach recognized that, but I also think coach recognized seeing the amount of pressure that Yancey would come in with and how much pressure he would put on himself to perform. Um, and, you know, people can say a lot of things about coach Cronin, but one thing that I can say from watching him for five years and, um, was he genuinely cared about his players to make them better men and better, you know, members of society. And, you know, they were um, like his own children in a way, right? Like when he saw Yancey come in beating himself up because, you know, somebody might have said something stupid to him or whatever, whatever the reason was, you know, I think Mick takes that on personally and hurts just like, you know, people with children, when they see their own kids suffering or hurting, they, you know, take that on too, right? So I think it might have been a way for Mick to, quote unquote, protect his some of his players in the future that they didn't have to, to take that on, um, whether right, wrong, you know. And it's hard to say looking back. Last thing I want to ask you, I want to flash back to just getting the manager job. Because yeah. I don't know, you don't hear from managers very often. You just don't hear about what you go through. I mean, there's probably more stories you can tell just about the, the logistics of being a manager, what it's like, how you interact with the players and coaches and what your life looks like as a college student. But let's just take me through getting the manager job and maybe your first interaction or first couple of interactions with Mick and how those were. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, <clears throat> this would certainly be a story of persistence. So, um, you know, I grew up in Huntington, West Virginia, but from Cincinnati originally, right. So huge UC fan, um, came back and, and, and shoot, even my family, like my, I don't know if I ever told you this, but like my, my great grandparents owned a bar in Clifton called the Clifton cafe. 
it was at the corner of Victor and Warner. Um, yeah. So they owned it from like the thirties and then, um, my grandparents sold it like 1982, I think. I've always been a mogul. You came from a mogul family. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah, man. It was a shot beer bar. Actually, my grandmother, when, when her final year, she got so pissed off because growlers came back in style and, and that was how they made all their money was selling, you know, draft beer growlers and draft beer for like a dollar 50, a growler, you know? And, Mm -hmm. uh, and she's like, you know, you damn kids and everything comes back in style. And, you know, if you, if they wouldn't have stopped buying growlers and we would have still been in business in the 80s. So uh, <laughs> that's a quick sidebar. But um, so what happened was like growing up in Huntington, there was actually a doctor in, in Huntington, uh, Dr. Astley, that his nephew was on the staff at UC under hugs, Andy Astley. And, um, and my dad was actually a manager at UC, uh, for football. And then he, he was a manager for basketball for one year. So I kind of grew up with this idea of, Hey, I want to try this. If I can get my foot in the door, help pay for some school, get some cool experience. Um, my dad was like, if you're going to do it, definitely do not do football. He's like, because (laughs) with basketball, being a manager, you know, it's going to be you know, 72 degrees in a gym and you're not going to get soaking wet. But if you're a football manager, you're out there in snow, sleet, rain, 70 degrees, a hundred degrees, it doesn't matter. Right. So, um, so Andy Astley was on the staff. I came up my junior year of high school, talked with him um, and kind of started a relationship. All of a sudden hugs gets fired the next year, my senior year, of high school, uh, Andy Astley still on the staff with AK. And I came up, you know, for like Christmas and I popped over and asked him, Hey man, can I come over for a practice? And this was their practice gym at that point was down in the armory. We didn't even have the, the practice gym down in like Parsi village, like, like we do now. So go in the armory and he's like, listen, if we're here next year, you got a spot to be a manager. Um, but you know, there's no talent, right? So all of a sudden they get they get fired, you know, or they don't get the job. Mick gets the job. And at that point it was it was like March, right? And I just start emailing like everybody on the basketball staff, like every other day, just saying, Hey, this is who I am, you know big Bearcat fan, had this relationship, would still love the opportunity to be a manager. And I'm just emailing. I I think I called once a week into the office. Um, Winona, who was the the secretary, who was great. Like, you know, at the time she didn't know me from Adam. And she's like, I keep giving your messages to coach, you know? So finally what happened was I went to Huntington high where OJ Moe was from Huntington, you know, Patrick Patterson, who went down to Kentucky. So Patterson was a year younger than me at Huntington High. We had another great kid, Chris Early, um, Bill uh, Walker. Yes, was also from Huntington. So it's just this amazing group of talent that that was at Huntington, right? (laughs) Well, they ended uh, up a year or two at North College Hill in Cincinnati, too. Yeah, that's right. OJ might have been beforehand. Up, right? I think they did that before they then they finished at Huntington. 
That's right. So then OJ and Bill, um, you know, went back and uh, OJ played his senior year with Patterson at Huntington High. I don't know what Bill did, but that's that's another sidebar too. So all of a sudden I'm sitting there. It's like, it's um, it's late May and this 513 number calls me. And all of a sudden, you know, I, I remember this distinctively because I was getting ready to go into like our senior award ceremony for high school, you know, and I answer it and it's coach Larry Davis. And we said, uh, and, and I'm like, you know, hi coach, you know, completely taken back, had no idea that I'd be getting this phone call. And he, he's asked me some questions and, and I told Patterson this, I mean, to this day, I would say that Patterson helped me get the manager job too, because on top of all those connections and the foot in the door I had, after coach took a few minutes asking me about myself and and get my background, he goes, so how well do you know Patrick Patterson? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, well, I, I know him pretty well. And, you know, he's like, well, you think you could help us get him up here for a visit or something to the tune of that. And so, I mean, I had been working on Patterson his whole high school career about wanting him to be a Bearcat. Um, but I mean, shoot. Tubby Smith was driving down and going to like every one of his home games. He had, he had coach K flying up to watch him play. Like, I think he ended up putting the Bearcats on as like his top five schools that he was considering, but we were so far behind the eight ball. Um, but so uh, had that great talk with coach Davis ended up coming up to work a few summer camps that year and um, met met a couple of really good guys, Drew Seidenberger, who's now um, out in, in the Pac-12 conference and, and another guy, um, Matthew Martin, that the three of us were kind of the first three managers. Um, Matthew and Drew came uh, from Furman with Larry Davis as, as manager. So I just kind of kept persisting, man, and, and got the opportunity and, grinding my way up to get some scholarship money and, and a lot of cool experiences. So, you know, I hope this is insightful because um, for a lot of years, I've thought about even writing some of these stories down just to give people some insight into what it was like to rebuild that program. And I uh, hope you guys invite me back so I can share a few more of those stories.